0: I just sent around to the um, Google Groups Listserv a link uh, to an interview with the philosopher uh, Peter Hacker, whose work I'll talk about a little bit this morning. Uh, If you happen to be writing your doctoral dissertation on Wittgenstein, you're no doubt very familiar with his work. Uh, If not, uh, perhaps not so much. (laughs) Uh, He's the author of a um, four-volume commentary uh, on the uh, philosophical investigations and also um, another book uh, called The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience, which actually... Uh, would have slightly broader appeal, probably numbering in the dozens of readers. Uh, People who are interested in philosophical critiques of uh, cognitive science and neuroscience. So since I don't expect any of you to really take it uh, up as beach reading, I'll try to summarize a little bit of what I think is relevant. Um, What particularly struck me in the interview uh, was the way he compared uh, philosophy and science and what kind of knowledge or insight we gained from each. And a nice way of describing the difference, he said, is that if you ask a scientist to uh, list the greatest achievements of science in the last thousand years, there's no difficulty in coming up with uh, an agreed-upon list of uh, great achievements. However, if you try to generate a list like that in philosophy, there isn't any. There's no such thing as progress in philosophy the way there is in science. Uh, In a way, it's analogous to um, the notion of of progress in in poetry. Uh, You can make a list of the great poems and poets of the last couple thousand years, Uh, but you can't say... You know, we've really advanced on, uh, you know, incompetent poems like the Iliad.
1: You know, (laughs) we we
0: really know how to do that a lot better than they did then, right? You can't write a better poem than the Iliad. Uh, What you can do now is write in uh, more diverse styles of poetry, and you can write poems that may appeal to modern readers more than uh, Homer does. but in terms of the, uh, the mastery or the engagement with the material you can it can't be bettered. Now philosophy uh, hacker said is uh, is a discipline in which... Each generation has to engage and untangle the particular conceptual models or uh, conceptual categories of their time. And it's going to be specific to, you know, what people are struggling with at a time. But that each generation has to do that struggle all over again for itself the insights of philosophy cannot be passed down the way you can pass down formulas and mathematics and physics in philosophy it's much more the case that we have to reinvent the wheel over and over again with every generation It asks us to look at the conceptual categories or more or less, we could say, the explanations that we give to things and why we usually unconsciously prefer one set of explanations or kinds of explanations to another. Um, A simple kind of version of that would be to say... um, what are the explanations we give for the fact of uh, difference or inequality in the world see it makes a big difference if we assume that uh, difference in wealth or opportunity or power is a god-given natural order if we assume that it is biologically based on innate capacity, or if we see it as the result of a uh, political arrangement of power. At any given time, one of those explanations may pass as absolute common sense and never even be questioned. And it's the job of philosophy to get us to pay attention to our assumptions and ask where where do they arise, and is there another way to look at it? Now, I think that the reason I bring all this up is I think that it is very analogous to how we function both in therapy and how we function in religious practice, particularly in Zen practice. A big part of therapy is sort of asking, where did you get that idea, right? Uh, it's deconstructing our common sense notions of what we can expect or not respect from the world or from relationship. And our Zen practice is one also in which we try to look at our assumptions about who we are, and what this life is, makes us look at our assumptions about what we call the meaning of our life, or how we can come to terms with basic features of our life. Now, there's been what I think of as a very unfortunate turn in some circles to think of meditation practice as a um, form of cognitive science that we are investigating like brain researchers the way the mind works and are figuring out the fine-tuning of our minds and or our brains But I don't think we discover anything very esoteric, really, uh, in our practice. And there's no information, really, that we gain, uh, like the information of a PET scan of a brain looking at what little parts light up when we do this or that. See, yeah, I think the basic things that we come to terms with, we might, the moment I might say there three basic things about our, this life that we discover or, or, uh, or that we know that we don't really need a lot of scientific input into. Uh, we know that we're going to die. We know the reality of love and attachment and the centrality of relationship in in life. And we know something about the centrality of the phenomena of joy or play or simply a kind of vital, delightful engagement with the world that we have as children and that we see either growing or being stifled in the course of our life. And how we understand those three things, what we do about it, how we try to control them or avoid them, uh, mortality or impermanence, Love, friendship or its absence, joy, creativity, playfulness, how we organize our lives around those possibilities or what we see opening up or closing off those possibilities, fundamentally all that we're up to in this practice or therapy practice or anywhere else. Now Hacker's point that in philosophy nothing can be transmitted generation to generation, but we have to figure it out over and over again for ourselves, um, I think is true in terms of the content, but not exactly true in terms of the process. What we transmit is a tradition of philosophizing. What we transmit here is a tradition of a certain kind of religious practice. Now the shape of that keeps changing. Um, and a big part of the internal discussions of philosophy or analysis or religious practice is the shape or the con- the kind of container that one generation passes on to the next in terms of how we're going to do this practice, how we're going to carry on this investigation. What, uh, what forms or hints can we give the next generation about uh, how to do this in a way that we think is fruitful? And sometimes one generation can't tell the next the damn thing. And sometimes... We can be overly attached to a traditional way of doing it, and say, if we just stick to the way described in the Shobogenzo, we can't miss, right? Well, if you stick to the way of the Shobogenzo, some people won't miss, right? Uh, in the same way, if you stick to saying poetry is the Iliad, some people will, you know won't miss, but a lot of people will. Um, just not connect to it so we both carry on or transmit traditional forms and at the same time we constantly try to figure out in what way do we need to adapt them so that they really come alive for us in the present Uh, because our goal is not just to transmit a form for its own sake but to transmit an activity that has a certain function in our lives, and uh, it won't have that function if it's um, uh, simply a museum piece, right? Uh, or if it's too uh, disconnected from the experience of everyday life to really uh, engage it. And philosophy functions that way, too, it's, um... You have uh, examples of somebody like Nietzsche who... engaged his whole life trying to... look at what are the fundamental assumptions we make about the meaning of our life, in terms of religion and aesthetics and power, and he just went at it every way, you know, from every side possible, uh, hammering away at uh, what he thought were implicit assumptions that we carried around about who we were and what society was and how we operated. He, his kind of brilliant analysis can't be superseded, but it also may not speak to everyone. Wittgenstein's analysis of language is a fundamental critique like Nietzsche's that can't be superseded, but it's, again, not a style that everyone will be engaged by. So over and over we have to um, rewrite it, reformulate the problems, uh, and go at them in another way. Yeah, I think our whole endeavor here is to find the right balance between the trust and transmission of an old form, which we've sort of gotten this message, you know, if you stick to this, this is going to work, trust me, (laughs) right, and feeling like, well, wait a minute, you know, this is not uh, exactly uh, 13th century Japan, maybe we need to do it a little differently, right? Um, so we both have to inherit the wheel and reinvent the wheel over and over again for ourselves I think we the two sides of practice I think that you can think about it's particularly difficult here in a way one side is that kind of trust and complete surrender into a form and a tradition and a big part of traditional practice was uh, intended to bring about an end to self-centeredness through surrender a, a kind of just do it let the whole traditional form take you over and become you. you wear out your own self-centered likes and dislikes and opinions about how it should go by just submerging yourself in the, in the form and even when we didn't use the uh, traditional forms uh, like in San Diego uh, Joko used the metaphor of a grindstone uh, over and over again as a picture of how we use difficulty and pain in practice to wear out self-centeredness. That's something that every generation, in a way, has to surrender to uh, in order to be able to make any use of the forms that we inherit. the same time, we have to find a, a form that we trust and makes sense to us. It can't just be submission. It can't just be a kind of passive, uh, almost masochistic, uh, you know, kind of, well, this is the way they've always done it, so I guess this is what I've got to do. That, uh, that just becomes dreary. And I guess that the, the criteria for me is how well does the, the practice that we come up with engage these three things in our life? How well does it enable us to, to face rather than avoid our mortality? How well does it allow us to face rather than avoid our dependence on other people, how much does it foster that sense of joy or wonder in life? Okay. We say there's no gain in practice, but there really, there really is a difference uh, between a practice that's dead and a practice that's alive. <laughs> uh, and though you know, looking at it through those dimensions is a is a good way, I think, of of asking whether the form of the practice that we're engaged in right now is, is alive or not. And I can create and transmit a form that feels alive to me, but each of you have to be active as well as uh, you know just passive participants in that. That's the... Um, burden or responsibility of lay practice. We really are much more responsible individually for our own level and form of commitment to how we practice and participate and engage in a sangha that is not defined in a uh, rigid monastic uh, way where everything is uh, set in advance. I hope you'll take a look at uh, the Peter Hacker interview and reflect a little bit on uh, the nature of this practice, what it is we're engaged in, how to tell if it's alive or dead, and how to think of that uh, in terms other than uh, progress.